This is Warrior Podcast, changing the world by introducing warriors to the warrior God. I'm your host, Elizabeth Andrade, not here with Connor Shanahan. Connor, where are you? What's going on? You're, you're remote. Oh, bomber. I miss you guys. I miss, I miss being in the studio with you. Shout out to all my warriors out there. They understand this struggle. I am at a military school in Mississippi. So I'm still serving in uh, the Air National Guard. I just have some obligations that I've got to fulfill. So I'm here in Mississippi, holding it down, missing you guys so much. But uh, thankfully, we've got such a solid team here at Warrior Podcast that we're going to try our best. We're going to pray that the audio comes through on this bad boy. We have got plenty of exciting things coming up. Um, We're just excited to see where God takes us. But today we're here to talk about the story of the Bible, which is where we've been for the past few weeks on this new series. Last week, we talked a little bit about the hope after the fall. And today we want to give you the answer, which is Jesus. Come on, Elizabeth. Come on. The hope, the hero has arrived. So that's right. We've been going through the story of the Bible. Let me just recap that quickly for us. Just a quick refresher. The story of the Bible, the one story that that Scripture testifies to, is the fact that God created a wonderful world. Human beings messed it up, but God loves human beings so much that he, from that moment of failure and disobedience and fall, initiated a redemptive plan to redeem and restore mankind. That plan finds its climax in Jesus Christ, the promised hero who comes. He comes to earth to fulfill the promises of old. And to die on our behalf so that our sin might be paid for, that we might be reconciled to the Father. Christ ascends to heaven where he reigns and rules over all things and promises to one day come again to restore the world to its original paradise design. And that is what we're talking about today, the arrival of King Jesus. And in the scripture we're starting off in, I think you have John 1. Is that correct? Yeah, let's do that. I think John 1 frames this conversation perfectly and paints such a picture of the arrival uh, of our Lord. So we're in John 1, 1 through 14. I'm just going to go ahead and read that for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Amen. Pretty sure they're talking about Jesus here. Big facts on that one. Yes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've observed his glory, the glory of who? Who are we talking about? Jesus. The one and only son, Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Who is Jesus? Yeah. I mean, this this passage helps us understand the arrival of the hero. So this passage frames the son of God in such a cool light because it frames the arrival of Jesus as kind of a retelling of the of the creation account in Genesis, right? Right. Like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so we have here kind of this retelling of the story to remind the reader. In the beginning, God reigned and ruled over all things. God created all things. 
And here, John is going to make the connection that that same God who created everything became flesh and came to earth as Jesus Christ. Super interesting. Yeah. We see here, even in, in, in this passage, I mean, we could camp out in this passage all episodes we wanted. We've got some other exciting stuff to talk about, so we won't do that. But in, in verses 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, to all who believed in Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. I mean, that's the gospel, right? If you believe in Jesus, you are then welcomed into God's family as his child. And so we see so many cool things here in this passage to frame this conversation on on who Jesus is. Jesus is the name given in the incarnation to the Son of God. The Son of God comes to earth, takes on flesh as Jesus Christ, so that uh, we might be saved, so that we might believe in him and find life in his name. Okay, so how does this work? Jesus is God, Jesus is man, he's both at the same time. What? How does that work? Yeah, one of my one of my favorite things is when you ask someone a question like, "Hey, do you want uh, Starburst or Skittles?" and they say, "Yes." It's like, "No, no, no. <laughs> I asked you, I asked you what you, what you wanted, right? Like, give me something real here." And so if you ask me, "Is Jesus God or is he human?" Yes. <laughs> He's both. <laughs> and that's tough. It's tough, but hopefully, if you've been with us from the beginning, if you're one of the OG Warrior podcast listeners, if you have endured our series on the Trinity, then you are well-versed in this, dear warrior. You could turn around and teach us this doctrine. So basically what we're saying here, this is Christology 101. And uh, I know you're going to ask Elizabeth. Yeah, what is Christology? What's Christology? Please. <laughs> I stole your question. <laughs> Christology is simply the study of Jesus, the study of Christ. Um, and so there's this, there's the language that we would use that, that is probably most common throughout church history, Christian history, is that Jesus is truly God and truly man that as um because who we're talking about right as we saw in john when we're talking about jesus we're talking about the son of god the second person of the trinity god the father god the son god the holy spirit god the son comes to earth takes on flesh and is given the name jesus christ so it's important to really it's important to ask the holy spirit for wisdom in this because it's tough right it's similar to the trinity where we have one god one divine nature one divine essence yet eternally existing in three distinct persons. Here we have the Son of God who never loses his godhood, never loses his divinity, and yet takes on the fullness of humanity in the incarnation. Well, and that's important to note that you said he never lost his divinity. Um, I know that there's some talk maybe that goes around um, that Jesus actually laid down his divinity and gave up his godliness when he was on earth, but that's just simply not true. And I think there's some good scriptural proof that proves that point. There is. That's that's a very important point to make. It, it's unfortunate. There's it's it's a it's an old heresy that's just been kind of repackaged and uh, redistributed as this new idea today. And and let me say, that's true of all heresies. Like in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, the author writes over and over again, there's nothing new under the sun. Like if we just study history, we'd be so much more better off to handle the, the weird ideas that, that seem to come out of nowhere in the present, but really they're rooted in history. And there's a lot of support to understand these things. So this idea that he laid down his divinity, the, the kind of passage at hand, I guess, what we're really looking at is Philippians 2. So warrior, if you want to flip there, if you're not driving, if you're not slamming a workout right now, go ahead and turn with us. Philippians 2, 
1 through 11. All right, this is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitudes as that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I love that passage. And unfortunately, what gets zoomed in on and misunderstood is what you read in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, right? So that's where people would unfortunately kind of misunderstand or misconstrue this passage. But I think it's clear what we're talking about, right? If you look at the first couple verses of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul, who wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, hence Philippians, Paul is clearly encouraging the Christian to adopt a certain mindset, right? Right. He's saying, think in the same way, be united in spirit, have the same love, be intent on one purpose, do nothing out of selfishness or conceit, but be humble. Everyone should look out not only for their own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then immediately goes into adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. So an attitude would be something like just because he had that attitude doesn't mean that's the definition of himself. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. I think I think even most simply, like this passage is describing the attitude of Jesus mm -hmm. because Paul is saying adopt the same attitude as that of Christ, who and then describes Christ's attitude. So what it means for Christ then to empty himself is for him to have the attitude for him to empty himself of the divine prerogative to be worshipped and served. Right, he because it's not that. to be exploited. Because he's a loving God, he doesn't exploit himself. Exactly, like. exactly. He took on an attitude of humility. He took on an attitude of, of service. And he did that on our behalf. But it, Christ is not emptying himself of his divinity. He's emptying himself of the divine prerogative to be worshipped and served. Yeah, I love the way you put that. That makes so much sense to me. And the reason why he's able to do that it's because he's divine. <laughs> it's because he is God. A human being would not be able to, to do this, would not be able to empty themselves of their natural right to be worshipped. Like the Son of God has every right to be worshipped. The Son of God has every right to command service and worship and obedience. And yet, in God's great grace and mercy in the incarnation, the Son of God emptied himself of, again, this divine prerogative to be worshipped and served. And the only reason that he's able to do that is because he is divine. And that just even speaks even more to the loving nature of our God. It really does. It really does that God became flesh, endured our humanity on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to him. 
that he was willing to serve us in this way. It's radical. It's truly a radical love that we see happening here in the incarnation. Connor, you have these rules about reading the Bible. And I think that this is a prime example of that. What were those two? I, I think I remember one being about context, maybe. Come on, preach it. Preach that context. I think, yeah, there's two very simple frameworks or guidelines that will help you greatly, immensely in your understanding of scripture. And rule number one, context, 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 right? Just like if you're uh, if you're moving to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if you're trying to settle down, you're looking for a home, the number one thing you're trying to consider is location, location, location. Number one rule of real estate. In the same way, the number one rule of Bible reading is context, context, context. And so if you're gonna look at any passage, if you're gonna look at any verse, you must understand the verses preceding and the verses that come after it. You've got to just understand the Bible in context. The chapter and verse numbers here are stuff that we have added in because they're helpful, right? Paul, when he was writing this, didn't say, verse 4, everyone <laughs> should look out not only for his own interests and then write a number 5 on the page, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Paul, was, he was just writing a letter. He was writing a letter to this literal church that existed in history. We have obviously put in the chapter and verses to make it easy to reference. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But we just have to understand that you can't take one verse out of a letter and extract this whole understanding of what it's trying to say without really reading and understanding the context that it lives in, if that makes sense. So I think it's clear if we look at the entire chapter and gather the context, Paul is talking and addressing Christians, and he's just explaining to us the attitudes that we should have as Christians. Absolutely. And, and as part of his teaching that, then he, he highlights the attitude of Christ, the selfless attitude of Christ, who laid down his divine right to be worshipped on our behalf in order to serve us. So what was that second rule again? Yeah, and then just, just for kicks, the second rule, obviously this passage presents a prime opportunity to reflect on our Bible reading rules. So number one is context, context, context. That's proven clear from this verse. Our second rule, just for kicks, just a little free lesson here is Christ. Number one, context. Number two, Bible reading rule or guideline or framework is Christ. All scripture points to Jesus Christ. And uh, the Lord himself gives that Bible reading lesson in Luke chapter 24. But again, we just want to bring that up because here in Philippians 2, it's such a prime example of a heresy birthed out of people taking verses out of context, not understanding a, a whole passage, a whole chapter that's talking about the attitude of the Christian. And speaking of all scripture pointing to Christ, I think that kind of takes us back to Genesis 3.15. We've been really focused on this verse. And just the contrast between how horribly Adam failed and how Jesus came and saved everything. That is a massive point. And that is one that the writers of Scripture also highlight. So we have for sure, and I have my cards on the table, I think Genesis 3.15 is the key to understand everything. So we see after the fall, after the disobedience of mankind, of Adam and Eve, we see the Lord himself promise a hero who will come, a hero who will come and defeat evil forever, a hero who will come and lead God's people back into the promised land. And here in the New Testament, we see basically every author of every letter in the New Testament affirm this promise to be true of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. And the point that you bring up, though, is, is fascinating and is true that we see in Genesis 3, we see the fall of Adam. 
and we see sin and brokenness and the fracture of the cosmos introduced through the disobedience of Adam. And in the New Testament, we see um, life, we see sin defeated, and we see a redemption offered through the life of Jesus Christ. That's just so beautiful. And, you know, one of the places in scripture that we see this so clearly is in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and also verses 18 through 21. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and read those right now. Here we go, starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not changed against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. And then skipping to verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is. It's pretty clear. <laughs> the, way, the, way that, the way that Paul writes is phenomenal, especially in Romans. Such a dense, life-giving letter, I guess. I mean, I think if you, were, dense... like, if you were reading that in real life or like listening to someone say that, I would be like so pumped up. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's true. Like, So hopefully this makes sense as we're framing this conversation of who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he accomplish? This is one of the most significant parts of his ministry that Paul highlights here, that he illustrates in the first couple of verses that Elizabeth read that through Adam, sin was introduced into the world. And because of Adam, all people were guilty of sin, regardless of what they did. All people are born under this kind of weight and curse of sin because of the transgression and disobedience of Adam. However, just as, this is the point that Paul's making, just as through one man through Adam, sin and death entered the cosmos. So also through one man, Jesus Christ, life, forgiveness, grace upon grace are introduced into the cosmos. I mean, in this way, the story of the Bible is starting to make a lot more sense. Yeah, it, it all relates. And that's the whole heart behind this series is to show you that, that, the, that the scriptures clearly tell one unified story, one unified story of the Lord on his redemptive mission to redeem and restore and reconcile all things unto himself. So here then we see Jesus doing just that. He is redeeming. He is restoring. He is making all things right. He is making all things right. Where Adam failed, where all the heroes of the Old Testament failed, where the nation of Israel itself in the Old Testament failed, Jesus is fulfilling their obedience. Jesus is accomplishing restoration and providing a way for reconciliation on our behalf. I mean, this is a hero that like, if you were started off in the beginning in, in scripture, like, and you're in the Old Testament, this is the one that people hoped for. They had thought, you know, after Adam, heroes rose and fell throughout the entire Old Testament, like Abraham, Moses, David, and they all failed miserably. But now the true hero has arrived. Yeah, we cannot even imagine how transformative this would be for a Jewish listener at this time. For them to have such a knowledge of the Old Testament, such an intimate longing for the hero to come, for the Messiah to come, for Christ to arrive, 
for Christ to arrive and for his life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection to be so transformative. We cannot even imagine what it would be like to see this unfold in front of us. So, so this is what we see the Son of God do. He comes to earth in the incarnation, in his act of taking on flesh, being given the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus then positions himself as the climax of God's redemptive story, that it's through Jesus that all the sin, all the brokenness, all the curses from Adam and from the Old Testament will be redeemed and restored in him through his life death, burial, and resurrection. So this is what we see Jesus do. Like we see the arrival of the hero and we see him accomplish these things. We see him do all these things for the goal of initiating God's redemptive plan. And really like, like being the capstone of God's redemptive plan to uh, redeem and restore all things to make right what went wrong with Adam. Now it's also important to note and to consider the purpose behind his coming, right? Like certainly big picture, we see God, God himself, the Son of God, coming to earth on our behalf in order to redeem and reconcile and restore all things and provide a way for us to be redeemed and reconciled. However, that's not always the way that this gets taught, right? That's not always the way that we understand the life of Jesus on earth. So often we hear, and I do think that there is an aspect of, of this that is true, but it, however, it's not the main point, um, and which is we often hear so much, especially growing up when we're kids, that you want to be like Jesus. Jesus came to earth to show you how to live. While I do think that Jesus is an example, that wasn't the purpose, the main point. Did you ever have one of those WWJD bracelets or t-shirts? Yes, I did. I did. Yes. I rocked one too. I had the bracelet. <laughs> WWJD. What would Jesus do? Right? Yeah. So that is huge. It's, it's an important point to bring up that so often like the ministry of Jesus. And like, I agree with you that there's some, there's certainly some benefit in trying to, obviously we want to follow Jesus, right? Right. Obviously we want to obey Jesus, but I fear that there's often an overemphasis on presenting Jesus as like this, almost like a moral philosopher, right? Right. That we are just to emulate, and if we act like him, then we'll be good people. And if we and don't, if we then God like... will be mad at us. Exactly. I think I think that's it. And and so I think that just this overemphasis on like, you know, the actions of Jesus is so actually contradictory to his ministry. Like Jesus was preaching and proclaiming that your works don't save you, right? It's not about being a good person. It's not about doing the right things. It's about believing in me, in Jesus. It's about believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the hero, that he is the Messiah promised from long ago, and that he is the one who is going to redeem and restore all things. Right. And then when we believe in Jesus and we love God and we know God more and we make that our sole purpose of our life is to love and serve God, then that's where the transformation comes, where we want to follow what Jesus was teaching because we know that that's the path to flourishing through the obedience. Exactly. So well said that our our initial belief and love and delight in Jesus is primary. That's the invitation of Christ to believe in him, to find life in his name, to delight in him as the greatest treasure of your life. As you do that, as you truly love and delight in Jesus, you can't help but obey. You can't help but follow after him and take his teachings seriously. And I love, obviously, super extra credit points to you, Elizabeth, for bringing up flourishing. I think that's <laughs> a huge theme, a huge theme that we see throughout Scripture. And I think that that's, that kind of just highlights the teachings of Jesus. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, right? That's what he talks about most in his teachings on earth. And what that means is, is Jesus is the king, right? He is the king over all things over the universe, over the cosmos, over all people and places and time. 
And so the kingdom of God then is the rule and reign of King Jesus. So Jesus, in his ministry, by his teachings, by his life, um, initiates the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is now here. And so we as Christians who believe in Christ and submit our lives to him under his lordship, under his kingship, are now citizens of his kingdom. And one day when he returns on his second coming and brings heaven down to earth, his kingdom will be fully realized. And uh, earth will become the paradise that God had designed it to be from the beginning. So that's that's like the number one thing that Jesus taught. And in that, I think, is an invitation into flourishing that Jesus, whether it's on the Sermon on the Mount or in his parables, Jesus is describing a path of obedience that leads to joy. Jesus is inviting his followers to reject this good works religion where you try to earn your way before some holy deity because that never works. That never works. Jesus is inviting us to rest in him, to abide in him, to love him and delight in him, because that's where we find flourishing in life and joy. Just to finish off your point with some scripture, this is John 20, 30 through 31, which says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The warriors today are just getting their fill of scripture. We're, we're doing Bible drills over here. <laughs> we are. We really are. But that's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite verses that um, in 31, where it says, these are written so that you may believe, so that you may believe. So like the whole purpose of Jesus's ministry was not just to be a good moral philosopher, was not to be just a good example for us to follow. The purpose of Jesus's ministry and life and the purpose of the scriptures is that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the capstone, obviously, of Jesus's life, perhaps, you know, if, if you don't know anything about Jesus, perhaps you've even heard this story that Jesus died on a cross, that he was put in a grave, and that three days later, the tomb was empty. The grave was empty. That is the means through which the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is, is the difficult means through which Christ atoned for our sin. Now, what that means, I'm going to steal your question again, Elizabeth, because I'm not there in person <laughs> to see it formulating in your mind. Atonement is uh, basically just the price is paid, right? So like Jesus pays the price. So our debt, our, our debt was the sin. Correct. And then because what we saw in Romans 5, what we see throughout Scripture is that all human beings, because of Adam, thanks a lot, Adam, because of Adam, we are born into sin. No choice. We are by nature sinful beings. We are disobedient creatures. And again, if there's any parents out there, go ahead and email us a hearty amen. We already know, fam. We already know that your children don't listen to you (laughs) just naturally, right? We are naturally disobedient creatures. So because of that, because of that sin, Because we are naturally sinners against a holy God, we are naturally destined for destruction. We're naturally destined for death, eternal death. So the grace of God in this, in the gospel, and in the ministry of Jesus is to to come on our behalf, to die on a cross, to take the punishment that we rightfully deserve onto himself. Now, Elizabeth, if someone steals all of your lunch money, how much lunch money do you have left? Zero. Zero. And in the same silly way, Jesus takes all of our sin, all of the punishment that we deserve, all of the wrath from God that we rightfully deserve for our sin onto himself. We're left with none of that. And so if we simply believe in Jesus, that he did what he said, and after he died, he went to the grave, and then he rose from the grave where he ascended into heaven, 
is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all things in power. If we believe in that, then our sins are forgiven because Jesus took them. He paid it all. He took it all. And he offers us eternal life if only we would believe in his name. This is the turning point of the story of the Bible. Yes, the turning point, the climax, the capstone. It is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that sinners are able to now be reconciled to God, both now and forever. Connor, before we wrap up this podcast, I know that your birthday's coming up. Um, it's not quite Don't yet. You dare. But, but I, I just wanted to wish you a happy 73rd birthday today. <laughs> 73rd. That sounds that sounds about right. Yes, today is the date of this recording actually is the 73rd birthday of the United States Air Force. Oh, come on, preach it, sister. Preach it. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, United States Air Force. I'm so thankful for you and everything you've done for my life and uh, I'll serve you forever. Not as much as I'll serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get it twisted, but I will serve you and I do love the United States Air Force. Happy birthday. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to trust in Christ, or if you want to learn more about making Him the authority over your life, or if you want to learn more about us, send us a message on our Instagram at WGMHQ. That's WGMHQ. We will make sure that someone gets in touch with you. This has been Warrior Podcast with Connor Shanahan. Warrior God Ministry's mission is to change the world by making disciples among military members and first responders and equipping them to be disciple makers and missionaries in their respective communities for the glory of Jesus Christ.